Nothing like good godly worship to, to set our hearts in tune for, for the teaching of God's Word. If you will, before we, we open the Word of God, let's go ahead and, and go back to the Lord in prayer as we begin this morning. Father, I come to you as, as an unworthy servant, unworthy of holding forth the, the Word of life. May this morning our lives indeed might be lifted up towards you, Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. My, at the end of this day, my, what might be remembered is not the words I use, but the, the word of the Lord that is eternal, that is powerful, that is life-changing. May the message of your word, what you would want us to remember, might come forth. We just commit this time to you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is not our primary text. Paul's already read our primary text for us this morning. But we'll begin here and lay, the, lay a foundational principle here as we begin. Look at today, as you see up in the title, Barnabas, Lessons in, Lessons in Encouragement. It's always a little bit tricky to... to to preach a what we call a one-off sermon, meaning there's no before and after. It's one Sunday and 40, 45 minutes to, to preach the Word. And then you take a narrative passage, a historical narrative, which also has a lot of history to it, a lot of context that's needed. So we're going to try to cast all that appropriately and, and be careful. One of the dangers in the narrative context is just to make wrong applications. And my desire this morning is to point to observations of the text and, and from there allow the Spirit to, to encourage our hearts. So let's look at the first 11 verses of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first 11 verses. I'm going to read all the verses. I'm going to read the first three or four, then verse 8, and, and uh, lay a few foundational thoughts here as we begin on, on this topic. And then we'll go to Acts 4, and we'll stay there the remainder of the morning. But verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Slide down to verse 8. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, which in the previous chapter explains that means uh, passed on already, that are dead, asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, he says, verse 11, encourage one another and build one another just as you are doing. I think if we were to... To see this context here, he talks about the day of the Lord, and he tells the believers not to be basically discouraged, but encourage each other that we have been called to wrath, but we've been called into salvation. I think that we would agree this morning, if we were to talk about the need for encouragement, there are certainly a lot of things to be discouraged about. I mean, I've, I've stopped reading the news. I don't look at the details of the news. I get t- the headlines are depressing enough to not know the details, the gruesome details of what is happening, but so much from the economic forecast to societal lunacy to loss of common decency, loss of rational boundaries, 
sin flaunted every time we turn around, and on and on the list goes where we're disheartening as this might be, we have this promise, we have this hope, and we have this faith that God has not destined us for wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, as he says, we might live with him. So he says in verse 8, we are to encourage each other with these truths. Now that tells you two things about what he's saying right here in verse 11. The, the first thing it says that's obvious is that, well, to obey that command is we need to be encouragers. We need to, to be those who encourage. We need to know what it means and what it looks like to encourage. And it also tells us that we need encouragement. We need encouragement. The first, to the first, I would say, you know, do we need to be encouraged? I would think most people, hey, do you need to be encouraged from time to time? Yes, we all need to be encouraged from time to time. Some more than ever, more than others rather, and perhaps even this morning you're at a place in your life where you have uncertainty, you've had bad news, you've had turmoil, you think, why? I need someone to encourage me. I trust today that through the encouragement of God's word, we would be awakened and prompted and encouraged by, not only to encourage the body of Christ, but to be encouraged by the body of Christ. So now look with me in Acts chapter 4. This is the text Paul read, and this is where we're going to be Parking this morning, we're going to go through the chapter, so you will be looking down through the entire chapter, but we'll be sticking to chapter 4 this morning and, and the verses 32 through 37 specifically and just picking this text apart. But I want to reread this text and, and then we're going to see the parts we're going to emphasize this morning. This is where we're introduced to Barnabas, otherwise known as Joseph. I find it interesting that his real name, I say his name is Joseph. But no one remembers him as Joseph. He's only remembered as the son of encouragement. So verse 32 through verse 37 in Acts chapter 4. And again, we'll be, we'll be parking it here this morning. It says, Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons, a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I think when we think about encouragement, it's hard not to think of Barnabas. I mean, Barnabas, son of encouragement, he's the one that we often think about or our thoughts go to when we think about encouragement. And, and when I first went to the text, I was thinking about what, how can I encourage a congregation exactly and how can I encourage the body I started going here thinking, okay, I want to find out, you know, how did Barnabas encourage I mean, What did he do to encourage the body? And we see a few principles there, and I'll see this near the end. But I really began reading through chapter 4 and the context of chapter 4, and I began to really focus on, I mean, why was Barnabas an encourager? Because if I understand why he was an encourager, I'll understand how he encouraged, and I can do likewise, and be encouraged to do likewise. So we're going to look at both of those this morning. First, 
how, I want to understand how he was encouraged, and then I want to understand why he encouraged, and then from there prayerfully examine my own life and see how I can be that as well. What a difference it would make, would it not, in, in, in our lives and in the lives of this body, if we were encouragers. I mean, if you came to church Sunday morning and you were encouraged, someone encouraged you, you encouraged someone else, how invigorating that would be, how encouraging that would be, and that's how the body is designed to be. Now, when we read Acts 4, it's easy for us to, to dismiss that passage. Well, those were exceptional times. You know, those were the, the early church. There were, there were miracles. There were signs. And, and yet, we, I want to put that aside for a moment and understand the, the, the heart and the response of the gospel in chapter 4 that explains Barnabas' heart disposition and why he was an encourager. So let's, let's give a, a, a brief context in the historical text, historical narrative. I want to bring it back to chapter 4. How did we get here? Well, chapter 1, we had what? Chapter 1, we had the promise of the Comforter is coming, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Encourager, the same word that is used for, for Barnabas. It means to come alongside uh, someone and uh, come alongside a brother and sister in Christ and encourage them to stay true to the word. We have an encourager in the Holy Spirit that comes alongside and opens our eyes, prompts our heart, prompts our, our, our conscience and directs us towards truth. And he, he does so and he makes this announcement in chapter 1 and then in verse 8 of chapter 1 he says you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. This power, this boldness will be evident as the church faces persecutions. Chapter 4 is going to be the first persecution of the church, and we'll see the response, and then we'll see persecution in chapter 5 as well with Ananias and Sapphira, and we'll see that in just a moment. Chapter 2, promise of the comforter. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. Uh, we see that the comforter has come, and we see Peter now preaching with great power. The Peter that was... Uh, nervous, that was uh, denied Christ, that was impulsive, that was all these things. Now here he is in chapter 2. He begins preaching with power and preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Common theme in, in the preaching here in these first few chapters. So we go from a Peter who's conflicted in his emotions, denies Christ, and now empowered by the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 41 of chapter 2, we have the, the first witness of a harvest of 3,000 souls. We arrive in chapter 3, and in chapter 3 we have the events that caused the persecution in chapter 4. In chapter 3 we have the healing of the lame man, Peter and John, given the power to heal. They heal a lame man, and they preach the word. Again, these are, these are transitional times to, to verify the authenticity of the message, to point to Christ, to point to uh, a new age beginning here. They're, they're empowered with these gifts and abilities to, to heal, and they do so with this lame man. We know today we have, as a matter of fact, later on when Barnabas comes before the church of Jerusalem, Acts 15, he says, you know, I've seen the, the God working, and he testifies to that to authenticate Paul's ministry and the legitimacy of the ministry here in chapter, chapter 2. So we see the, the, these, these miracles. We see the power of the Lord. Of course, for us, we have the Word of God. The Bible is clear in Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. We're called not to, not to look for signs and wonders, but to look to the Word and teach the Word and preach the Word. So in chapter 4, Henry come chapter 4, we, he, we see the healing of the lame man prompted, and then godly, ungodly men to respond. We have the rulers, we have the elders, we have the scribes, we have Annas, the high priest, we have Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who were of highly priestly descent. They all come, and they're 
we'll see here in verse 2 of chapter 4, they're disturbed by what they see. We see the first opposition, and we see the persecution that is about to fall on the church. Peter and John are arrested. They'll be released thereafter. We'll see those verses here in just a minute. But in the meantime, what do we see? Verse 4, we see the power of the gospel is made manifest. And we see another harvest of 5,000 souls for those who had heard the word and believed. And then we're introduced to Barnabas. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. In their midst is Barnabas, Joseph, verse 36, and he's introduced at that point. Now, we don't know exactly when Barnabas, Barnabas came to know the Lord. What we do know is he's part of these believers. We know that he witnessed Peter and John. He's part of these, this early church movement, um, and part of the early church, and those who were part of this, new, this young harvest of souls. Chapter 5, and we're not going to go to chapter 5 in our study, but in chapter 5, you'll, you'll, be, you'll, you'll remember that we have Ananias and Sapphira. So really, those two stories of Barnabas coming, not just Barnabas, but others in the end of chapter 4 are introduced as giving their land, selling the property, because in the, in, the, in the mass growth of the church came new needs, a new growth and needs, and so these men generously came, sold, gave money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. When you lay something at the apostles' feet, that's a sign of what? Of, of giving it over to. You don't ear, it's not earmarked for some pet project. It's given over at their feet so they can distribute as needed. And you'll remember then when we arrive in chapter 5, what do we have? Well, the exact contrast, Ananias and Sapphira. They do the same thing. Now, they're witnessing something different. And obviously, they have a, a different uh, problem than, than Barnabas. They gave, but then they lied about what they gave, and gave the impression that they gave everything when they did not, and they were quickly judged and con- condemned for that. So we have the testimony here in, in, of, of Barnabas, and my desire this morning is, is to first, and I don't know really what the time we have, if I'll get really to a lot of the applicational part, but how was he an encourager? I'll mention those at the end, based on the time we have. But first of all, I want us to understand and really, the, the most simplistic answer, it's really a very simplistic answer, but yet with, but yet complete in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed. Now, on, on the surface, I mean, it's like, okay, where's the, where's the impact of that word, right? I mean, okay, they believe. Now what? I mean, what do I do with that? I mean, on, on the surface, it's a very simple expression to say, Barnabas was amongst those who believed. But to believe something to be true is, is part of the definition, but it's certainly much more than that. It's much more powerful than that. It's more than just acknowledging something to be the case. A lot of times in Christianity, when you're, when you're evangelizing, it's not just getting people to, to acknowledge something might be true. It's believing. And this belief carries the idea of being Persuaded, And we're going to see that in the, even in the response of the Sadducees when they respond to Peter and John. They say, wow, you know, you speak with such boldness. I mean, the unbelieving world recognized the persuasion they had about what they believed. So on the surface, it's a very, very simple answer, but yet it, ref, it reflects persuasion to place confidence, to place faith in and to have conviction. Barnabas was a believer in every sense of the term. And that's, that's hard in, in American culture to understand. Now, when you go in, in, in other secular cultures, and you're, whether they don't claim Christianity, you don't say you believe unless you believe. 
And there, there, are still, there are still people that are deceived, understandably so. But in American culture where so many people believe, it's a very, it's a very milky term, very gray term. But it wasn't for Barnabas. Belief meant carry the full persuasion, the full confidence, the full conviction, the weight of conviction of what he believed in. Believers have every reason to be the most encouraging people on earth. I mean, we have everything to be encouraged about. We should be the engine for being the encouragers because we have, obviously, the gospel of Christ. And I, I found that when you read through this and you find the world, the world is also seeking to be encouraged, right? There are a lot of discouraged people. There's depression, there's discouragement. And the world, interestingly, is, is seeking ways to be encouraged. And if you don't turn like Barnabas did towards the gospel and believe in the gospel, believe in the resurrection, you're seeking other things to be encouraged in. And i just doing a little bit of research, and I'm not an expert in this field by, by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a psychologized view called positive psychology. So there's a whole study, a whole realm called positive psychology. A branch of psychology that's focused on the character strengths and behaviors that allow individuals to build a life of meaning, a life of purpose. Martin Seligman, the father of positive psychology, explores the areas of positive living, positive emotions, positive sense of, of meaning and purpose. I read one article, and I, I'm not going to give the name of the author. It's not important because I, I don't mean to denigrate anybody. It's just a, a indicative of their thought process. She has a doctorate in psychology from the University of San Francisco, and she, it's interesting because she, she has a good observation on the front end, but such a, a poor understanding of where that hope comes from on the back end. She says this in one of the articles that she wrote. She says, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty crushed by all the bad news these days. Reading these stories makes me feel hopeless and helpless. That's why I need some inspiration right now. One way to get there is through what she describes as moral elevation. What is moral elevation, she asks? It's that warm feeling we get when we witness someone engage in morally courageous acts, like rescuing a stranger from a fire or giving up a lucrative career for a greater cause. Moral elevation not only boosts our positive emotions, but it also promotes our love for our fellow humans and inspires us to be better people. Moral elevation will restore our faith in humanity and could help us protect our own mental health. To which I say, no, 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 no. What Barnabas discovered wasn't the gift of positive thinking. An encourager is not someone who has a good view of people and much less a good view of self. An encourager is someone who has a clear view of the gospel. An encourager, I'm just going to repeat that, an encourager is not someone who has a good view of people or a good view of self. It has someone who has a clear view of the gospel. Barnabas had a clear view of the gospel and he believed. So what I want to do this morning and, and, and spend a part of our time doing that and then seeing applications near the end with how he encouraged, I want to look at five Biblical benchmarks to belief. Five biblical benchmarks we see in chapter 4 that is what Barnabas experienced and believed in. Here are five biblical benchmarks to belief. The first one is perhaps a little bit odd, 
a belief that disturbs. But as you read through chapter 4, I, I love that first verse 2. So look down at verse 2 with me. We have the response from the Sadducees, the response from the unbelieving. And I, I love the way the ESV translated it. You might have a little different word in verse 2. But it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Verse 2, it says what? Greatly annoyed. I like that. Because they were teaching the people and because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Those who did not receive the word were greatly annoyed or greatly disturbed. They were offended by what they heard. Barnabas believed in a gospel that disturbed, that was annoying to the unrepentant and unregenerate man. They were greatly annoyed by the fact that Peter and John were, were teaching the people. Yes, they were teaching them, and they were, after all, the spiritual elite. They were the teacher. They were the ones that were to instruct. I mean, who, who's Peter and John to come and instruct the people? And in doing so, taken away from their own power, their own influence, because they weren't so much, they weren't interested in truth. They're interested in power. They're interested in control, they're, they're, their own pride. They were disturbed by the fact that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Of course, we know the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, so that disturbed them even the more. And they're annoyed and disturbed. Not only that, they're disturbed by what they see. The people are responding. I mean, they're, 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 coming, they're coming by the thousands. They're giving generously. Wow, this is so, so disturbing to them. This teaching was so offensive because it elevated Christ as the one who died and rose again, who conquered death, the author and finisher of our faith. Barnabas believed in a gospel that disturbs, that displeases, and that offends the unregenerate soul. Let us not fool ourselves into believing that we can proclaim a gospel, and that we can package the gospel in a way that it will not offend the unregenerate man. It is made to be annoying to him that does not want to confess and humble himself before the Lord. The only response of sinful man is to humble himself before the Lord, confess his sinful state, and repent of his wicked ways. Barnabas embraced such a belief that brought about persecution. In verse 3, look down again in verse 3 of chapter 4. They arrested them, right? They're annoyed, they're disturbed, they're the religious authority. They're given the uh, authority to be the religious police, even under Roman rule. In verse 3, it says, They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. It's already evening. But look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word, what? Believed. In other words, even in the face of the unregenerate and, and sinful man and fallen man's response to the preaching of the gospel, many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. You know, we talk sometimes about not wanting to, to trigger people by what we say and do. But the gospel is going to trigger people. And our response to the gospel needs to be the one Barnabas had, is to believe. Humble himself before the Lord. Don't be afraid of, don't be afraid of the gospel that offends. Let the gospel do its work. He believed in a gospel that made a difference. He believed in a gospel that you couldn't just glue on and stick on and tape onto your life. He believed in a gospel that, that disturbed his way of life, his way of thinking, 
and couldn't walk away from it the same. But now that he believes, uh, five biblical benchmarks too, a, a belief that saves. Not a belief that is just a, you know, well, yeah, that, that sounds good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add that to my system of beliefs. Power of God for salvation and power of God for transformation. Romans 1.16, a familiar text that we, we, we love to, to quote here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For why? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he was one of them. Barnabas embraced and he believed and he placed his faith in the finished work of Christ. As you walk through chapter 4, we see different times where they're reminded of the primacy of Christ. In, in verse 4, he says, many of those who heard the word believed. In verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed, including Barnabas. The power of the gospel, a belief that makes a difference, is one that saves man and one that transforms man. When the Sadducees came to Peter, I do find it interesting is that in chapter 4, when the Sadducees come, is them, they, they question Peter and John regarding what? Regarding the power to transform. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. They're questioning them about, about the power they have to fulfill the miracles that they did. They point, of course, as a response, Peter and John point to Christ, point to Christ, the, the cornerstone, verse 10 and 12 of chapter 4. And they point to the one who brings spiritual healing, to the one who brings salvation, to whom? To all who believe. Wow, Barnabas not only experienced the power of God and salvation, but the power of God unto transformed life. This is what is meant in the Bible when he says, when he talks about belief, we're talking about a belief that disturbs our lives, that changes our lives, that a belief into salvation and a belief into transformation. Look at verse 32, chapter 2. I know I'm making you look down a lot, but I'm not making you look away from this chapter, so that makes it a little bit easier. Verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believe are of one heart, one soul. Right, we've read that. Then verse 33, And with great power the apostles were what? Given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. We see the word power used many times in the book of Acts, and early on especially. When you talk about something being powerful, I describe it here, I put the definition up here, but you talk about something that is the effectual working of something, the effectual working, the efficacy of the gospel. The gospel is powerful. It has, it has the effectual working of transforming man, and now, when we understand that, and Barnabas understands that, then we'll understand how he applies that when he's mentoring and discipling Paul a little bit later. When he has the heart attitude he does towards his cousin John Mark when he walks away and then from the first missionary journey and calls on him, takes him under his wing later. We understand that because he understood the effectual working of the gospel and trusted the Lord to do this work. He, he believed in this transformation and lived it. Barnabas was an encourager because he was saved, because he was transformed by the power of the gospel. Another common thing we see around this belief in chapter 4, we see this all throughout the book of Acts. I think, I didn't write down the numbers here, maybe about 10 times to talk about the, the power and the power and the power, and the, I'm sorry, the boldness rather. Boldness is, is a common theme in the book of Acts and begins here 
in verse 13. Sadducees, notice the boldness of Peter and John. Boldness refers to, the, to this confidence. This confidence comes with this, with this courage, with this fearlessness. One thing we see in every one of the apostles is their, 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 their boldness. Why? Because they believed, they had seen the risen Savior, and they testified to that. And that's why they died a martyr because of the strength of their belief and faith in Jesus Christ. So boldness can be understood as having confidence or, or fearless or courage. Boldness in two things I put down here. One, boldness grounded in Christ alone. Boldness grounded in Christ alone. It says that verse 13, chapter 4, look down verse 13. Now when they, had, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, it says what? Well, they perceived that they were two things, uneducated and common men. They were astonished. I mean, yeah, they're like, wow. I mean, come on. The, two things about these men that point to Christ, and that's why during their testimony they point to Christ. They don't point towards their education. They don't point towards their social status. They point to Christ. A belief that emboldens the believer is one that is grounded in Christ alone, not in their education. It is easy to get emboldened by our knowledge and to sharpen those skills so we could argue the gospel and argue scripture. But they didn't rely on any human manipulation or to achieve results. Instead, they humbly and yet powerfully and unashamedly proclaimed Christ. And then it says they had no social status. They were just common men. Now you're talking about the, the Sadducees. You're talking about the social elite, the spiritual social elite, making a comment about these men. Said, Boy, they don't have, from, where, where comes this boldness? They've got no authority. Where does this boldness come from? There was nothing about them that would draw attention to themselves. They were just commoners. Their identity rested in Christ, and that is all the confidence they need. That is all the boldness they need. But I tell you, when we encourage each other in the world, and you have the world just bearing down on you, putting pressure on you to conform, and you have the world that's bearing down on you with pressure to explain everything away, and, and, and it just the weight of the world is there, our, our boldness comes not from, well, let me explain it all to you. Let me tell you how it's all going to work out. No, our, our Boldness comes from our belief in Christ as our Savior and the power of the gospel. And I can't always explain certainly a lot of things I don't understand about God. But there's certainly enough I know about him that he's revealed by himself that is sufficient. And our strength and our boldness comes from not our great knowledge and wisdom and education, nor our social status, but in Christ alone. That put down boldness in the proclamation of Christ alone. Look at verse 18. Now, verse 18 is a verse that we, we love because you can't, you can't read that verse without, without being emboldened. You can't read this verse without being encouraged. I mean, how many of you read this verse as a, as a believer who desires to be a witness and you read this and it says, what well, in verse 18. So they call them back. So here the Sadducees, they're trying to figure this out. They think, wow, they got, I mean, that's not their education. It's not their, their, their status, social status, and yet they have all this boldness. They have, they have this power. Where does all this come from? And said, well, they come to them and say, hey, verse 18, they call them, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I'm just thinking of their response in their heart. <laughs> like, yeah, that's going to happen. I think MacArthur said something along the lines of, you know, today we have a hard time getting people to speak about Christ. Here you couldn't keep them from speaking about Christ. You couldn't keep them from speaking. 
And we look at this response, full of courage and boldness, whether it is, in, he says in verse 18 or, or 19 now, Peter and John answer this. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The belief that they had was so strong that they could not but speak about it. How can, I, how can it be that we have so many professing, believing believers that can go weeks and months, sometimes years, without having any desire to speak about Christ? How can that be? They could but speak of it. And then look at verse 29. Again, boldness in the proclamation of Christ alone. He says now, the, he says, Lord, in their prayer here, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to what? To continue to speak your word with all boldness. There's no arrogance here. There's no pretense here. Lord, grant us the ability to continue to speak the word with all boldness. At the end of verse 31, it says, and to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Two more Benchmarks. First one is, I mean, the fourth one rather is belief that that unites. The belief that unites. Verse thirty-two: the full number of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. There's what brings us together this morning is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what unites. And the gospel was so present and so real and so strong in the life of Barnabas and so clear in his mind of these new believers forming this, this gathering that they were so strong because they had one gospel that they were united around. The gospel is what unites us. It's the subject of our encouragement. We are able to unite when we have a firm belief in what we believe. We have convictions about what we believe. Unfortunately, what happens in the church is that personal convictions divide, but belief unites. See, it's hard to be an encourager when your life is built around personal convictions. Those convictions become central to your faith because those personal convictions will separate you from those who don't have the same convictions. But belief in one gospel, one Savior, crucified, arisen, coming again, now that is united. That's what unites the church, and that's what gives the church its power. Belief that unites. And the last one here, these benchmarks, is a belief that frees from earthly bondage. I mean, it's almost surreal when you're reading this. And we, again, we could easily discard it by saying, well, this is, that is so unique to that time. This is not how we live today. And when he's not teaching communism, but he's, understand their heart understanding. He says it in the descriptive in verse 32. He says, why? He says, and no one said, look at verse 32, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Wow. A young church, young believers, young gathering, learned something and understood something that it takes sometimes believers in a whole lifetime to discover and to experience. Two things. One, they understood, and Barnabas understood, we are but servants, and we are but stewards. We're but servants. In verse 13 and in verse 27, he underlies two things. One in verse 13, 
For the sake of time, I'm not going to go there and read them, but you could just mark them down. He speaks to, to the, the sovereign Lord, the creator God, and he just recognizes as a created being under a sovereign God. And then in verse 27, he recognizes the, the hand of God. In verse 28, he says, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. They, in their early phase and stage, understood, and part of believing was understanding and believing that God is a sovereign God, I'm a created being, and nothing that I have, he'll do whatever he pleases to do, and I'm but a servant, and I'm but a steward of this. Barnabas was free to keep his proceeds. We know that. You go to chapter 5, and in essence of fire, we're not criticized for not keeping the proceeds. They're told you could have kept part of your proceeds and you lied about it. So it wasn't a matter of he, he was obligated here. This was not an obligatory tithe. This was not something where he felt they were coerced into doing. It was out of love for the body of Christ and out of love for the Lord. And specifies here out of full acknowledgement that nothing they had was their own. Jesus tells, remind us this. When, when you and I understand this, then you're free to use your life to glorify the Lord and encourage others. But until then, there's going to be a constant struggle between what I'm obligated to give to God and what I can keep for myself. And it's not this, you know, 9%, 90% is mine, 10% God. And it's not 90% God and 10% mine. It's all His. And Barnabas' freedom to be the encourager that he was comes from his full belief and understanding of these things so clearly defined here in these few verses. So, in just a few minutes, let me go over four areas that I find beautiful. That these, This is where I actually started my study. I'm going to talk about these four areas that, that Barnabas, how did he encourage? And perhaps through this, how can we encourage as Well, the first one is obvious, is through his, his generosity. We saw why he was an encourager. Let's see how he encouraged now. And he's known for some of these things. We'll see these things briefly. He's known for them. Perhaps the Lord is going to prompt your heart, would prompt your heart to be an encourager today and this week, and God will provide you those right opportunities to do so. But he encouraged with his generosity. We saw that he laid it at Jesus' feet, verse 34 here. We saw that he, the field that belonged, verse 37, sold him, laid at the apostles' feet. No strings attached. No, like I mentioned earlier, no, it's not earmarked for my project. It's here, Lord, it is yours to use as you seem fit, and they may provide the needs that are needed. Church was going, the church was growing quickly. So were the needs. And these new believers, Barnabas being one of them, demonstrated and encouraged by their generosity. Second thing I put down is they encouraged, he encouraged discipleship or mentorship. There's something really sweet and precious in the relationship he has with the Apostle Paul. What you'll see, you'll see a transition through, through the text. Well, we have Barnabas, 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 Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, and then eventually a turnover to Barnabas being the lead man. Eventually, in the second trip, second missionary journey, it's not Barnabas and Paul, now it's Paul and Silas, and Barnabas goes on with John Mark. But right after his conversion in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is wanting, you know, he's meeting, meeting the apostles. Now, he had been saved, radically saved, as we know through in reading the text chapter 9, 
But what we see is that the apostles, as we can understand, were fearful of meeting Paul. Now, Paul wasn't just a common sinner. He, was a, he, he had all the painful memories associated with him. He persecuted. He sought after. He caused a lot of pain. He caused a lot of suffering. So this wasn't just, well, do we want to take a wretched sinner in our midst? Do we want to take this man who persecuted our loved ones? And we see Barnabas who comes alongside him and says, let me introduce you to these apostles. Verse 26 and 27, and when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they, had, they were all afraid of him. Didn't believe that he was, they didn't believe that he had been changed. They didn't believe that he had believed and was in, had been transformed, but Barnabas did. Barnabas had seen the work of God in his life. He believed, Barnabas believed, that the same salvation that transformed his life transformed Saul's life or Paul's life. He had already observed it. So he... He takes him from there, and in chapter 11, a little bit later, he's going to take him alongside him. You see in chapter 11, verse, verse, 20, verse 25, he's going to go seek after Paul to go teach with him in Antioch. He's going to go to Antioch and teach, and he's going to go look after Saul and take him with him for a year. They teach together. At this point, it's still Barnabas leading a little bit later, in chapter 13, first missionary journey, there again, Barnabas is listed first, and then Paul is listed later. And Barnabas and Saul leave on this first missionary journey. The character traits we see in Barnabas produced in him a desire to encourage Paul as a young believer and walk alongside him and discipleship, disciple him rather, and mentor him in the faith. We fail to mentor, we fail to disciple for a number of reasons. Perhaps sometimes we don't, we don't believe God can transform that person and make him somebody radically different. Perhaps we, can't, we don't mentor because we're too self-absorbed. Guilty of many of those at different times. So more briefly, he encouraged unity. Unity was experienced by the early church, and Barnabas continued to encourage that unity. We see that in the conflict between in Acts 15... You can just write down these passages, maybe look at them later, but men from Judea had come to Antioch, and they were concerned. They wanted to impose on the church at Antioch, on the new believing Gentiles, the Judaic ways, and they wanted to be circumcised. And, and, and so I like, it, it, I like the, the verse when he says, you know, Barnabas and Paul go back to Jerusalem. And when you read in Acts 15, I'm just going to read the verse for you. It says, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that means it was a heated debate. <laughs> that's, that's the scripture way of saying they, it got heated. But it was so important because why? Because Barnabas had experienced and believed in the gospel and seen the life transformation of not only his own, but all those believing Gentiles, that it was important to him to go there and tell these Jews, no, we are united under one gospel. There's not a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer. There's one, and obviously the centrality of of the cross and not adhering to Jewish laws and circumcision in this context specifically. Last one. He encouraged, or he encourages reconciliation. I think one story that we're familiar with with Paul and Barnabas is, is uh, the, the conflict over, the issue over John Mark. They took him on that first, this disagreement they had, they took him on the first journey. We, we know that 
John Mark left them during that first journey, the first missionary journey, and um, we know Paul wasn't happy about it. We know he wasn't happy because in the description in Acts 15, verse 38, it says, the one who had withdrawn from them and the one who had not gone to them to the work. In other words, the description of John Mark there is a negative one in Acts 15. And come back around now on a second trip, what does Barnabas say? Hey, let's take John Mark again with us. Paul's thinking, done that, been there, done that, no thank you. I mean, he's not up to snuff. I mean, come on, he, he left us. He quit. I'm not taking a quitter with me. I don't know why the discussion was clear. There was a disagreement. The Bible describes that. And, you hear, and here you see Barnabas in all of his compassion and grace. He says, I'm going to take John Mark and the Marines. I still see in him what God can do through him. And so Paul leaves with Silas. And instead of, of abandoning him and going with, going with Paul, he takes him under his wings. And with that, we see the blessing of reconciliation. We know in Colossians 4, later on, Paul's going to admonish the church to welcome John Mark in their midst. Somewhere in that process, somewhere in those steps, he, he admonishes John Mark and he recognizes him and encourages the church to embrace him. You know, so much more can be said about, about Barnabas, so much more can be said about him being a son of encouragement. What I do know is this. One, we all need to be encouraged. We wouldn't have Scripture speaking to that if we did not need it ourselves. Some days more than others. We all need to be encouragers. And as the day of the Lord draws near, as we saw in our first text in 1 Thessalonians 5, as the day of the Lord draws near, we need to encourage each other as we gather to encourage each other in truth. It begins with who you are. Why are you encouraged? Do you believe? Are you saved? Do you, do you have a, a firm belief in the gospel that's changed your life and changed your way of thinking, your way of seeing, your, your beliefs? Is the power of the gospel doing its effectual work in your heart? Because if it's not, you're not going to encourage anyone else around you. So perhaps the Lord would put it on your heart, and I'll close with these applicational points here. Perhaps it will put in your heart a way you can encourage this week. Perhaps you could encourage to your giving, giving of your time, volunteering of your time, or whatever resources God has given to you. You can encourage the body of Christ to your giving, as Barnabas did. You could, perhaps the Lord would open the right opportunity for you to mentor someone, to disciple someone, someone who through the transforming power of the gospel can become a shining witness of the gospel. Perhaps the Lord would put you in a place this week where you encourage someone by fostering unity. We saw Barnabas was endeared to that. Perhaps you're around brothers and sisters who would otherwise fall prey to grumbling and murmuring, and you could foster unity. Perhaps the Lord would place on your heart someone this week, maybe a brother or sister that's fallen away, and you can use, and you can be used as an encouragement to bring them back to repentance, bring them back into the fold, useful for the kingdom. So historical tradition tells us that Barnabas was martyred. He was stoned to death in Cyprus back in his homeland. He lived out of life with the firm belief and the firm conviction that he served a risen Savior, one to whom he owed everything. And that belief carried him to be the man that he was 
and the encourager that he was. May we do the same. Amen.